And are you saying that there's evidence of collusion? Because everybody's trying to convert wishful thinking into hard evidence, and they haven't been able to do that. That's beside the point. He was seeking the information. He was seeking the damaging information. That's why he had the meeting. The more he's willing to forgive and forget Putin, the more suspicion. And I think it's going to dog his presidency until he breaks his cycle. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who doesn't like those fact-checking Pinocchios but can't stop winning them, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So Trump care is dead, at least for now, and I'm relieved. Not just because that bill was a policy-making horror show, but because it was distracting us from one of the biggest political scandals in my lifetime. I'm talking about revelations of collusion, or if you prefer a different word, collaboration, cooperation, connivance, between representatives of Donald Trump and representatives of the Russian regime. Here's what should have happened when Don Jr. received an overture from people purporting to be representatives of the Russian government offering him help. I'll venture it's what would have happened if any ordinary law-abiding politician had gotten a similar message. Little Don should have reported it immediately to the FBI. He's obviously got to do that for several reasons. The first is just moral and ethical. An enemy power wants to intervene in one of our democratic elections? The second reason is legal. You can get into serious jeopardy talking to Russian spies secretly. And the last reason is just bloody common sense. Think how this would look if it came out, numbskull. Well, it did come out, and it looks horrendous. At the very least, Don Jr., his brother-in-law Jared Kushner, and the ultra-sleeves Paul Manafort should now be offering groveling apologies for their lack of judgment and moronic misbehavior. Instead, the Trump boys are offering excuses for colluding with Russia, changing, contradictory, and dishonest excuses. In Slate last week, Will Salatan anatomized 15 different justifications they've offered in the space of just a few days. President Trump himself has defended meeting with the Russians bearing dirt, asserting that most politicians would have gone to a meeting like that. As the conservative writer David Frum put it in a tweet yesterday, we have arrived at the official presidential endorsement of collusion with foreign espionage agencies against political opponents. Because no one who was in the meeting on either side is remotely truthful or trustworthy, we're a long way from knowing what really happened in Trump Tower on June 9, 2016. We don't know the names of all the people who were there. We don't know what the Russians offered or what the papers were that they left behind. We don't know what Trump's people may have offered or promised to do in return, but we do have a pretty good idea what the Russians wanted. They wanted a repeal of the Magnitsky Act, a 2012 law that imposed sanctions on Russians involved in human rights violations. I'll be back in a few moments to discuss the Trump Tower meeting in detail with Bill Browder, the man behind that legislation. But first, at the end of last week, President Trump spoke to reporters about the importance of a transparent border wall. He said, As horrible as it sounds, when they throw the large sacks of drugs over, you have people on the other side of the wall. You don't see them. They hit you on the head with 60 pounds of stuff. It's over. This is a real problem. And today, we'd like to bring you the story of one family affected by it. Slate's Jason DeLeon reports. Sam Castellanos is a former car salesman turned birdwatcher. Last month, the day before he and his wife Tilly were to celebrate their two-year wedding anniversary, Sam decided to go for a walk. What Sam didn't know 
was that that walk would change his life forever. And I was walking very close to uh, a structure, a wall along the United States-Mexico border. And I just can remember being so happy and 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 everything was normal. And then the uh, the only way I can describe it is that everything went black. Sam was immediately taken to San Javier Hospital, a few miles out from the border, where doctors greeted his wife, Tilly, with one pressing question. Is your husband allergic to any drugs? And I said, no, not to my knowledge. And, you know, why? What What are you giving him? And they said, oh, no, we're not giving him any drugs. He was hit on the head with a 60-pound bag of heroin. The injury Sam sustained to his head is best known as unanticipated cranial narcotic impact syndrome, and its lasting symptoms have left Sam changed. I, I have I have I have mood swings. I I get angry easily at the things that I can't do that I, I could do before. And Sam's not the only one who's noticed this change. His wife Tilly can't help but feel like she's married to a different man. He's completely lost his desire to walk along the United States-Mexico border. That was his passion. Now that the tragic events of June 8th are in the past, Sam, like so many of us, is left only to reflection. What could he have done? What could be different so that other border wall walkers never suffer his same fate? I keep kind of replaying that day. And I just know, I, I know that if I had had some way to see through even just portions of that wall, I would have known that there was a 60-pound bag of drugs coming over, and, I, and this never would have happened. And while Sam remains optimistic, it's Tilly that has to take on the harsh reality of the situation, a situation that's unlikely to change. They are not going to stop throwing the drugs. So it's up to us to make sure that we make the changes that ensure that this never happens to another family. I wouldn't wish this on anybody. Sacks of Drugs was written and performed by Steve Waltine and Kate James, with help from Jason DeLeon. I'd like to welcome Bill Browder back to the show. He, if well, if you've been following the news lately, he's at the center of it. Uh, and he's the author of the book Red Notice, which I recommend to all listeners who haven't read it. Hello, Bill. Hi there. So you, I imagine, found out about this now notorious Trump Tower meeting. You probably found out about it when the rest of us did. And that the subject of the conversation was the Magnitsky Act, the legislation with which you are almost synonymous, having gotten it passed through the U.S. Congress. What was your reaction to what we found out about that meeting? Well, my first reaction was um, that, that everybody was trying to spin it as something as it, that it wasn't. I mean, the the original spin out of out of the Trump camp was that it was a, the meeting was about adoptions when it had nothing to do with adoptions. It was exclusively about repealing the Magnitsky Act, which is something very near and dear to my heart. And my second reaction was that. Um, it's, it wasn't unexpected. Vladimir Putin 
has made it his single largest foreign policy priority to get rid of the Magnitsky Act. And um, he has devoted, through various different cutouts and channels, huge resources um, to get rid of it. And it's not a surprise at all, given how much um, money has been spent and how many lobbyists and intermediaries are involved, that they somehow found their way uh, to Donald Trump, who at the time was the Republican nominee. The, the Magnitsky Act, of course, is not the only sanctions imposed on Russia, yet it seems to have this this special resonance for them. I mean, for one thing, they retaliated against it by restricting American adoptions of Russian orphans, which is why Donald Trump Jr. used that that kind of code. When someone says adoptions in that sense, people who know what's going on here know that know what they're actually talking about. But why is this bill such a priority for Putin and for these Russians who were representing whatever Russian interests they were representing in this meeting? Um, it's very simple, um, because Putin has um, amassed an enormous fortune over the 17 years that he's been at the top of the heap in Russia. And the Magnitsky Act very specifically would target him. It would target him um, because we have been able to track down information and evidence which shows that some of the proceeds from the crime, the $230 million fraud that Sergei Magnitsky uh, uncovered, exposed, and was killed over, some of those proceeds went to Putin's nominee, a man named Sergei Roldugin, who, for those of you who have remember the Panama Papers, he's the famous $2 billion cellist from Russia who got all this largesse from various oligarchs and Russian state-owned companies. World's most profitable classical musician, by a long shot. Probably the world's most profitable musician of any sort, <laughs> by a long shot. Um, in any case, he received some of the money from the Magnitsky crime, and it's well-known and well-acknowledged that this man is a nominee trustee for Vladimir Putin. And so when Putin reacts to the Magnitsky Act with such, such personal venom, he's reacting because he feels like his entire purpose in life, which was to steal money from the Russian state and keep it offshore, is at risk. And that's, that's the, the it, you know, it comes down to just dollars and cents, personal greed and fear. That that's why he wants to get rid of the Magnitsky Act. And, and that's why they're ready to ruin relations with America over, over the Magnitsky Act by banning adoptions and doing other things. And that's why so much money has been spent and so much government resources have been allocated to fighting Magnitsky Act and fighting me, the person behind the campaign to get Magnitsky Act in place in the United States and around the world. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember this or to note that this $230 million wasn't stolen from you. It was stolen from Russian taxpayers. It was this this uh, your your company was hijacked in order to claim this phony tax refund. So it was actually Russian public funds. Yeah, so, so effectively... Putin and his cronies were stealing money from the state, as they do in many other instances. And a lot of people look at this number and say, well, you know, $230 million is not even a pimple on the whole corruption proceeds. And that is true, except for the fact that this particular pimple was exposed by, by Sergei Magnitsky, and, and, and the world knows about it. And, and the trouble is that you start pulling on this string, and it leads to other strings. And, I mean, just for example... The tax office, number 28 in Moscow, which was the tax office that authorized this illegal $230 million tax refund, they were researched or or investigated by Novaya Gazeta, which is one of the last remaining independent newspapers in Russia. And Novaya Gazeta found that they had, that this tax office just by itself, one little tax office in Moscow, had stolen or or authorized a billion dollars 
not just 230, but a billion dollars of fraudulent tax refunds. And that's just one little tax office. Imagine all the different scams going on, building the Olympic Village, building railroads, building pipelines, all the money that's, that's um, overcharged, stolen, rebated, et cetera. And it adds up to some serious, seriously large amounts of money. Right. So this, this is just one pimple, but it points to a giant case of acne. But it's not, it's not just Putin we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about a class of Russian oligarchs and connected people in Russia who want to travel to the United States, who want to launder money here, in part by buying real estate in buildings like Trump Tower, uh, who want to put their children in school here. I mean, you make it sound a little bit like it's just about Putin himself and whatever resources he's securing abroad. Well, I, I, Putin is, is the, the sort of the big boss. He's the mafia boss here. But you're absolutely right that, that, that I would guess that there's, there's probably 10,000 people who surround him that are big recipients of this of this these crimes and and I would guess that that a trillion dollars has been stolen from the state by Putin and this ten thousand people since um, since he came to power and so we're talking about masses I mean this is this is just such an extraordinary amount of money and there's it's it's so important for them not to have this this game called over. And um, and that part of the problem with the Magnitsky Act is is it does just that. And and I should point out, it doesn't just freeze the assets in the United States. What it does is it puts people's names on the U.S. Treasury sanctions list. And what that means is, in, for all intents and purposes, is that once you, you once your name is on a, a Treasury sanctions list, you cannot open a bank account anywhere in the world. You can't open a bank account in Peru. You can't open one in Dubai. You can't even open one in China because there's no bank in the world that wants to be in violation of U.S. Treasury sanctions. And so if you're on the Magnitsky list, you're effectively a financial pariah from that moment forward. And no international bank, no international company, just about nobody will touch you as a legitimate person to do business with. So if you say there are 10,000 people in Russia maybe who've been beneficiaries of this this enormous act of, of confiscation and, and thievery, how many of them are affected by the Magnitsky Act? Well, everybody is kind of affected by the Magnitsky Act. At the moment, there's only 44 people on the Magnitsky list, but nobody knows who's next. <laughs> everybody is living in fear that, that, that they're that – the, I mean, they've all got this plan, which is to do terrible things in Russia – and then if ever the Putin regime were to end, they could then travel abroad, live in the houses that they bought, spend the money in the banks that they've squirreled away, and then live a quiet life. And that all gets thrown into question if with this piece of legislation that stands out there. And so it really just creates this, this it, it, it's almost like it terrorizes the, the criminals because nobody knows who's next. Back to the Trump Tower meeting, there's sort of two interpretations of it we're working on. I mean, one is sort of the the pretty much acknowledged one now, which is it was about the Magnitsky Act. This is what uh, Natalia Veselnitskaya and Renat Akhmesin and and some uh, Russians to be named later, but had not named yet, were there about. The other is that this was an intelligence operation, and it was part of a long running scheme either to uh, get material, blackmail material on the Trumps or to try to influence them. I mean, I'm not sure these two things are totally incompatible, but do you think it was one or the other? I'm pretty sure it's it's the first one. I mean, I wouldn't over over complicate matters here. The Russians have, st- have, have been very clear. Putin has been very clear 
that they, they really dislike this piece of legislation. If you ask any member of the Russian opposition, the political opposition, what really gets under Putin's skin, it's this. And, and these people have been at it um, in, in, in very blunt and not unsophisticated ways of trying to get this piece of legislation repealed. I wouldn't read too much into it beyond what it is, which is that's what they wanted. What, 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 we, what we have to speculate about, though, is what they were offering in return. Now, I, I, I don't believe a word that any, anybody said on the Russian side about what, what they were offering in return. And frankly, based on, on the fact that the, the, the Trump story, the Trump camp story has changed three or four times, I don't think we can believe what they've said either. And so there's this big question mark that's, that hangs over this thing. We know what they wanted. We know what the Russians wanted. We just don't know what they were offering to get it. And we don't know what, what was promised or what wasn't promised in the meeting. I, I, uh, since everybody has been so untruthful, I, I wouldn't necessarily believe that, that everyone just walked away and said this was a waste of time meeting either. What's your speculation, Bill? Well, I, 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 um, I, I have a thousand different um, ideas knocking around my head, but it's got it. What I can say is that, that, you know, in the KGB, they, they spend lots and lots of time studying human reactions to things. And they look at what, you know, they, they would have studied their subjects before they had gone into that meeting. And they would have said, what do these people want? And what these people wanted was to win the election. So how could they help? And, and we've all seen some of the stuff. Now, are, were the Russians, were these particular Russians offering that? I don't know. Um, some Russians were, were doing something about it. And so the question is, can you put all these things together? I, I, I'm, you know, I think Bob Mueller will be the one to decide <laughs> um, what, what's what. Is there anything, is there any there there? But we know for sure what the Russians wanted. We know for sure what they might have been offering based on, on their understanding of Trump. They left some documents behind. We don't know what those were. It seems like a high likelihood that they mention you or they're in part about the Magnitsky Act. Do you have, do you have any idea what that might have been? Um, well, I, I believe that, that, that these are the same documents that have been produced by the general prosecutor of Russia and handed over to, um, to a, an American uh, congressman named Dana Rohrbacher. The, the Russians have been trying to use these documents to have me arrested in America to um, to try to uh, imply that I'm somehow uh, a criminal. They're, they're, it's all a bunch of sort of nonsense, um, stale, um, disproven Russian allegations. But that's what the that's what the general prosecutor have been handing around. And and from from rumors that I've heard that that's what I think that um, that they were offering up in that particular meeting. But I I, I can't. I have no verification of that. And it was anti-U propaganda, possibly. And they made an anti-U movie, which I have not seen. But what, what, what the, I know it, become the, it became the subject of, of controversy, and there was a screening of this film. How, do, how did that all come about? Well, so, so the Russians, the Russian government has had this, this real sort of, um, actually Putin has had this real thorn in his side about the Magnitsky Act. And I'm the, the chief proponent of the Magnitsky Act. I've, I've gotten the Magnitsky Act passed in America. I got it passed in the United Kingdom, passed in Estonia, soon to be passed in Canada. And this just infuriates him. And so they've embarked on a, a fully resourced campaign to try to discredit me. And it started out in Russia, uh, where they started to make movies about me um, that they put on state television. And so one of the, the most famous movies, which they put on, on the national government television station, is a movie claiming that I was a, a spy working for the CIA and MI6, and that I was um, involved in multiple murders in Russia, and that I, I somehow uh, was trying to destabilize the country, and I had a number of opposition politicians who were my agents in Russia, and they went on and on and on 
to this whole thing. And it was so ham-fisted and so idiotic that it 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 it, it was it was more of a of a of a joke than anything else. And 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 moreover, the, the Russians then, when after doing this movie, realized that wait a second, they're they're sort of playing it to the wrong audience. The the, the Russian people, it doesn't really matter what the Russian people think about me. What what matters is is what all these politicians in the West think about me. And at, at that point, they they got together with a Russian filmmaker who is much less stupid and and awkward as the producers of these Russian movies, a guy named Andrei Nekrasov, and he put together what looked kind of like a slick documentary, which claimed that Sergei Magnitsky, my lawyer, had not been murdered, that he died of natural causes. His movie claimed that Sergei Magnitsky wasn't a whistleblower, that he was somehow criminal. And the movie then went on to, to conclude, therefore, that Bill Browder, myself, that I was a some kind of uh, fraud in, in presenting this story of Sergei Magnitsky's death in, in, in Congress and various other lawmaking bodies around the world. And the intention was to show it on French television, on German television, on Swedish television, on Finnish television, and try to show it in Washington. Very quickly, all of, uh, we, we, when we learned about this film and we had a chance to see it before it was, it was aired publicly, we wrote to the TV stations and we said, here's the evidence that disproves this movie. And and then one by one by one, they all they all canceled the the showing. The one place where where they had where these Russians had had gotten some traction was at the museum, which is a, a museum in Washington, a journal journalism museum in Washington. They have journalists preserved alongside dinosaurs there. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 we wrote to the head of the museum, and he was so offended by our letter. He said, "You know, we're here for free speech. Everyone has a right to say whatever they want, et cetera, et cetera." And so they showed this movie. Um, at the museum, interestingly, a, a number of Russian opposition activists showed up and and booed and jeered throughout the whole thing, and it didn't really have the effect that that um, that they wanted it to have. But um, that nonetheless, they they made a big deal about it. They had so they tried to co-opt various journalists in Washington. They they hired a PR firm. They hired uh, a guy Glenn Simpson from Fusion GPS, the same firm that did the uh, Trump dossier, to to promote the movie and promote the narrative that Sergei Magnitsky was was a crook not not a not a whistleblower none of it it worked but it, but it was uh, it was it was daring it was well resourced and it took a lot of our time to to um, make sure that it didn't somehow ruin the Magnitsky legacy by uh, by spreading false information by sp- spreading fake news this was and this is my first experience with with the whole fake news world yeah but this Akmesson this Renat Akmesson who was in the Trump Tower meeting who is a background in Russian military intelligence, is now an American citizen, he had a role in publicizing this film, right? Well, he, he was the main... So just, just to understand who the characters were in the, in the meeting with Trump. So the woman, Natalia Veselnitskaya, was a, is a lawyer. She represents a family from Russia, a government family from Russia, that received proceeds from the $230 million fraud that Sergei Magnitsky exposed and was killed over. So that family received proceeds of the fraud and were charged with money laundering uh, charges by the Department of Justice. And she was the lawyer um, who had showed up in New York to organize the sort of um, legal defense for this family of government-connected oligarchs, actually the government-employed oligarchs, um, who received money from this crime. So hers was a, this was a familiar name to you when we all heard it for the first time. Yeah, so I I've, I've, I've been uh, she she's a 
a real sort of extreme person. And every when 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 they were running their defense, normally lawyers um, uh, give you sort of options. They say this is the most extreme option, and this is the re- more reasonable option, and this is the other option. And um, she basically chose the most extreme legal option in every different circumstance that she had. And the lawyers were loving her because they were literally making tens of millions off of her and off of her client. But it didn't just stop there. So she, in addition to doing this legal defense, she also set up a, a, a fake NGO in Delaware to um, fight the Magnitsky Act. They, they, they called it an, a pro-adoption NGO, but it was the, the only thing it really was going for was anti-Magnitsky Act. And this is where this guy, Renat Akhmetshin, shows up. And so Akhmetshin is the head of this NGO. And Akhmetshin um, has now been sort of well-disclosed in, in most of the papers, is a, a Washington operator. So he was her guide to the corridors of power. And he was also sort of the general contractor for her in this whole lobbying effort. And so he was the one who went out and hired various lobbyists from different firms and PR agents and investigators and all sorts of other different types of characters. And, and he apparently had a, a pretty unlimited budget because they hired so many people. And so he was the one sort of doing all the moving and shaking in Washington. He was the one showing up in different congressmen's offices, asking them to either repeal the Magnitsky Act or take Sergei Magnitsky's name off of the Global Magnitsky Act. And um, he was pretty much everywhere. He was ubiquitous on this whole Magnitsky story uh, in the halls of, of power in Washington. So with the, the, the official story about what these Russian representatives were offering in exchange for Trump support in repealing the Magnitsky Act is something to do with exposing illegal contributions to the DNC or to Democrats. Do you have any insight into what that's what they're talking about there? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I think that what they were what they were um, uh, saying was that um, I had at one time in the early 2000s attended the Clinton Global Initiative Conference, and um, to do so it cost me ten thousand dollars, which is probably a lot of money for a conference, but I spent it. Um, and um, and then they put it, and, and then the Clinton people put it on their website that that my firm was a, uh, a contributor to the Clinton Global Initiative of ten thousand dollars. And so, as I understand it, <laughs> the pitch they had to the Trumps is, look, this guy is, is a uh, sort of uh, alleged criminal in Russia, a convicted criminal in Russia, actually, because the Russians convicted me. And look, he's a, a Clinton donor. And that, I think that was, that, that, as I understand it, that was their pitch to the Trumps. And if, if so, the, the Trumps probably were, let's get out of this meeting. They don't have anything good for us. Because even they knew well, that wasn't a, that didn't add up to much. If that's what if that's what the pitch was at face value, then 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 any any reasonable person would have thought this is ridiculous. Uh, I'm not sure who is saying what to whom, and, and and I don't think we can believe anything that anyone has said at a meeting. Now the other thread that's sort of dangling out there is about the settlement with which um, Jeff Sessions' attorney general took just before going to trial uh, with this case against Prevazon. Uh, which was a money laundering case, sort of growing out of uh, the out of the Mag the Magnitsky uh, murder and the, the you know the the whole the whole scenario, and there's some suspicion now. Some Democrats on the Hill have written a letter saying, "Look, we want to know if there's any connection to settling this case to all these shenanigans in the in the Trump administration." What's your read on that? Um, I was the uh, key witness for the government in their prosecution of these people, and, and, and I should point out that Natalia Veselnitskaya was the key defense lawyer on the side of the Russians. 
And I had, um, I had spent three weeks before the trial reading over the documents and preparing myself for, for what, um, what I, what, what would have been a very rigorous trial in which, um, I was going to present a lot of information and the other side was going to try to discredit me in any way possible. And so I, I had flown to, to New York and I was waiting for the trial to start. And I can say that I was certainly surprised that, that it didn't go to trial. Um, I, you know, that one could easily construct a, um, an argument for why it made sense for the government to settle. The government, at the end of the day, only found $2 million from the Magnitsky crime um, flowing into these properties in New York, and they were, they were able to get three times that amount in the settlement. But I, but, I, but I would like to know, and I think everyone would like to know, if there was any, if anyone made any phone calls. I mean, uh, you know, it's, if, if no phone calls were made, I, I would be happier to know that it was just a sort of normally the way that the Justice Department acts. But, you know, it would be nice to, nice to get the answer explicit and out in the open that there was no that there was no telephone calls about that because the the point of a case like this is not just to recover money for the government but to but to publicize the wrongdoing in question that this russian company and this russian family was was laundering money in this way yeah i mean i would have been much more satisfied if if there had been a court ruling convicting them of, of these offenses that would have been a very clear and and uh, and good outcome um, it was also interesting to see the the reaction of Natalia Veselnitskaya when the settlement was reached. She, she, she dancing on the tables and holding press conferences, talking about how this was a, just a spectacular capitulation of the U.S. government, and it was effectively an apology for for inconveniencing these people, and and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, with all that there, um, it'd be good just to. I'd like to know, and I'm hope, hopefully we will know that that um, that there was no untoward telephone calls made to, to make that happen. Does this have any effect on her clients, the, the Katsev's father and son, on being on the covered by the Magnitsky Act? Um, well, I, I, I don't know whether it does or doesn't. U.S. Treasury and State Department are the ones who, who, who compose the Magnitsky list, and it's a totally separate process, and it's, it's done with separate criteria, and so it's very difficult to say. The one thing that, that's interesting to know is that um, while they may have solved their legal problems on money laundering in America, um, they still have a bunch of money frozen in Switzerland under a criminal money laundering case um, on the same basis, and there's a bunch of money frozen in the Netherlands as well. And so, it's um, it's not as if they're out of the woods in terms of their Magnitsky problems. Uh, Bill, when we spoke in January, when you were on on the, this program, I think very soon after the inauguration, you just raised this general concern about Trump. Capitulating to to Putin's agenda on on sanctions on on NATO on a whole range of issues. We've now had six months of this. What's your diagnosis so far? Is it as bad as you thought? Is it worse? Is it not quite as bad? Um, at this moment in time, um, there's been not a, a an inch of capitulation. So every single sanction is in place. NATO is still there. Our um, position on all the issues as official positions of the United States. Is exactly how it was before. So, I credit that to to the professionals who are working in in the uh, defense secretary and to the Nikki Haley at the UN and 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 various others. It is it continues to worry me all these sweet words about Vladimir Putin, which I find offensive and totally totally wrong. But so far, all the sweet words that have been made by Donald Trump about Vladimir Putin haven't changed any U.S. policy to date. And of course, I watch this like a hawk. I watch every everything that happens, and, and nothing has happened yet. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed that nothing will happen. 
I've been speaking to Bill Broder. He's the father of the Magnitsky Act and author of the book Red Notice. Bill, thanks for joining me again. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Just one thing before we take off. Are you following Trumpcast on Twitter? The whole Trumpcast team is on there, and it's a great place to find clips from our recent shows to share with your family, friends, etc. We're at Real Trumpcast. And hey, have you been listening to Trump Care Tracker? It's going to be a great funeral this week. I think they're going to declare it dead today. Go to Trump Care Tracker at slate.com slash Trump Care. That's slate.com slash Trump Care. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.